Welcome to our 54th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, you know, Craig Moore, our, our favorite author, sent, sent a message and he sent us some actual video or uh, audio of how to say certain tanks and stuff. And I have been saying Jag Tiger and Yag or Jag Panther. The J is a Y, basically. Yeah. So I've been saying it wrong <laughs> for 20 years. No hey. wonder he shakes his head and pounds his head against the table. <laughs> to all the people that we've made mistakes, we are learning. Yeah, we are learning is just just like you guys are all the time. Absolutely. Something new every day. So if you're calling it a Jag Tiger or a Jag Panther, you we're saying it wrong. Yeah. It's actually a Y. Yes. So it's the Yag Tiger and Yag Panther. Look, we just got another oh, message. Man. <laughs> oh, man. It's from Ed Webster. We, we like Ed, too. Ed's a good guy. That's neat. So anyway, we are going to try to do an episode that we've always talked about doing about flying tanks or tank killers. You know, there's quite a few. The Soviets had a World War II tank killer. Um, there's like the A-10 Warthog. Um, the Cobra. We want to do more with, you know, things that kill tanks. So we are going to do our first one on the Junkers. Oh, wait a minute. Junkers. 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 Uh, 87G1. Now, if you don't, or if you're not familiar with the Junkers 87G1, also called the Stuka, I think it is. And it makes that cool sound you know when it's a dive bomber yeah on the yunkers 87g1 they put a couple of cannons or auto cannons underneath the plane and we're going to talk about that and how they wow. were killing it but would you think that a world war ii nazi or german airplane would have any you know bearance or any semblance of what we have today it we do it does we're going to tell you about how the g1 influenced the design of the a10 warthog so that's going to be a cool sweet but before we get started we've got some shout outs and uh, we do yeah. yeah we have been getting messages and messages oh man keep the comments and suggestions coming very much appreciated folks and they can leave that us an audio, audio message yes now. you can um, go to our website at www.twotankersandcat.com and right there on the front page, I've put instructions on how you can leave us a, a voice message and, and we'll play it on the air. Absolutely. So if you've ever wanted to give us a shout out back, you know, or just tell us, hey, you guys are terrible. <laughs> hey, we like hearing for you guys and it means a lot to us. Absolutely. Hey guys, Richie here, a.k.a. Belize UV Studio. Thank you. For your very informative podcast, 53. I loved how you guys talked about the T14. You went in, went over great details. I enjoyed that. I like. I, I think you should guys should talk more about different tanks throughout the world. That I, I feel like that's a new genre and a new area of focus of work or info. That would be nice, you know, hearing different tanks of the Italian, the latest Italy tanks, latest French tanks. That'd be nice. Shout out to Belize. 
great place. Wish you guys would come here and spend a week or two in Belize. Enjoy the great food. Chill by the beachside. A proper beach. Anyways, thank you once again. Keep up the great work with two tankers and a cut. Uh, what was our first shout out? Yeah, we got an email from uh, Harrison Minix. Said, hello, found your podcast. He's from Florida and he's an avid inventor and during his free hours. And he just had a couple of suggestions on upcoming episodes. He wants us to do it on the rat. Yeah. And then we had uh, the one guy ask us to do the mouse. The mouse, yeah. So we're going to do the mouse and the rat. rat. Look, the lightning in the cat's oh, ears perked yeah. up again. Perked up again. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, it's not mealtime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do that. And then uh, do we have another shout out? Yeah. Got a couple more here. James Rowland, he's a student from Chico, California, says, I'm a big fan of your podcast. He watches our podcast, which means he probably tunes into our YouTube channel and excellent and can listen to it through that. Says if it wouldn't be a bother, gonna get a shout out. It's no bother, brother. Oh, uh, heck no. Yeah, James Rowland out of Chico, yeah. California. Hey, welcome, man. Thanks for being a fan. Yeah, no doubt. He wants an episode on the E100, which was really never yeah design uh, yeah. well in action sure i think we'll just do all that we'll do the mouse yeah. the rat and the e100 we'll yeah. do that i'm telling you we're never gonna run out i mean we'll always find some tanks to talk about always yeah. there's just so much yeah. and and we still have world war one tanks yeah. you know we've never done the german world yeah. war one tank Never talked about the, yeah, exactly. And we've never talked yeah. about the French World War One tank yep. with the big long gun in the front. Sure. There's there's just tons there of stuff. There are, yeah. And, you know, we can dig in for, further sure. into history Heck and yeah. armored vehicles. And, and even some of them we've covered in the future. I mean, we can go into those in a lot more depth and we've a lot even more kicked, digging. We've even kicked around the idea of doing some, uh, like medieval, yeah. uh, siege vehicles that they had wheels and would smash gates yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So sure. We're, we're, we're not headed no, anywhere. No. We've got tons of stuff to sure talk we about. Do. And, and again, a lot of people say, well, you only touch a little bit on each vehicle. Crack a book. Yeah. That's what we're trying yeah. to get you to do. Um, There's yeah. great authors like Francis Pullman. Sure. Tank historians. Get on uh, Amazon.com and type in military tanks. I mean, holy cow, there's tons of reading material out there to learn about these tanks, guys. And, and people like uh, Hillary Doyle and Craig Moore and Ed Webster and, and a lot of uh, Nicholas Moran, yeah. even Rob Down in Fort Benning. Yeah. These are guys that spend their time sure. going through archives yeah. of actual reports they put them into books or, or magazines yeah. or uh, podcasts we're trying to get you to have a bowl of frosted yeah. flakes you know our style yeah. historian and then crack these things exactly we're also heard out of an individual out of what south africa yeah that wants to send us a book to kind of review it and we'll talk about it in the future episode he, also yeah he uh yeah he, uh, he's uh was talking about the rucat yeah which i'm saying that wrong too um but he has done a whole book about it sure and when he found out we did a podcast yeah, he's like hey yeah, i'm gonna send yeah. you my book you guys yeah. read it and give it a review hey, anybody else wants to send us a book to read we'll do that and we'll include a review on on a future episode. But know that we're going to probably go oh, yeah. give it away yeah. in a contest. Yeah. Who else do we got shout outs for? Yeah, we want to shout out to Alan Calf. Got an email from him. He's not only a tank enthusiast, but he's a cat enthusiast. 
Oh. Oh, man, oh, man. We we love Sweet, cats. We do, yeah. How many cats do you have around the house right now? I've got three cats now around the house. So. And I still have my cat, but I can't tell you its name because <laughs> it would violate certain broadcasting laws. Oh, shoot. The cat that will remain unnamed. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I know Alan says he's been a treadhead since the earliest days and kind of caught his attention, I think, when we did include Cat in our title of the podcast. And, and he says he's been listening for a while now. And You won't believe how many messages I get that are people are like, I couldn't sleep, I was bored, yeah. I've been locked up for the quarantine, and I was looking at tanks and cats, and yeah. next thing I know, here's two tankers and a cat. <laughs> well, welcome to you guys. <laughs> and he's actually offered to help us on some of the future shows on some armored fighting vehicles from World War II. And so what's his name again? His name is Alan Calf. Yeah, You know what? We'll get him and the guy from South Africa yeah. talking about their armored Heck fighting yeah. vehicles. Yeah. Pair them off against each other. <laughs> we're going to address haters again. Oh, yeah. In where we're from, if somebody gives you a wrong opinion or is cruel or, or anything like that, we here say, bless your heart. <laughs> that is a big F you <laughs> in a nice way to put it. So uh, uh, um, there were some haters. Uh, there always will be. You know, gave us some thumbs down. We... Honestly, appreciate you coming on to our Facebook and sure. our YouTube and stuff and leaving your comments. Sure. We really don't mind. Yeah. We do yeah. read them. We do read them. And even if they're negative, we take them to heart. And yeah. we're, if yeah. we think it's correct, we absolutely will try to fix it. Sure. But to the rest that are complete. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there will always be those out there, too. Uh, so. Out there. All we can say is. Bless your heart. Exactly. <laughs> Got one final shout out. We want to shout out to Lester White. He emailed us and said he's a big fan of the podcast and he sent us some suggestions for future shows. Yeah, he wanted the Israeli M5051 Super Sherman. Yeah. I think we talked about that. I think we did for a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think we've done mm-hmm. an episode. People are like, well, what do you mean a super Sherman? <laughs> Again, I know. Crack a book. Exactly. You know, go, go online. Yeah. Google search is a wonderful thing. It is. Oh, I, I have to tell you, my uh, 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 buddy from Kansas City PD said he was so bored. He was sitting at the house. He went up to his Alexa and said, Alexa, play Two Tankers in a Cat oh, podcast because they heard us yeah, say it yeah. and it started playing. Yeah. I know it can be on Google Home. Yes, it can and, be on And we're on Spotify now. Yeah. What Any new ones? Pretty much any platform that's out there. And if we're not, you can go to our website and get our RSS feed and kind of include it in any player or anything that like that that you listen to your podcast through so we're available pretty much on anything out there that you can find a podcast on it's just so weird how big we've actually got we've got thousands of downloads it's incredible uh, thousands of comments we it's just amazing to us it is and we appreciate you guys as the fans even the haters at this time period we've got about 23 and a like 23,500 downloads I mean, I never just thought for after, this. yeah, wow. just for our podcast since we started. And then, uh, so incredible. What we got 1,972 new 
yeah. uh, people that signed up. Yeah, it's, it's it, neat. Basically, short short version. Yeah. We're doing very, very we well. We are, we are, and we appreciate the support. Appreciate the comments, suggestions. Keep them coming. Right. We will make sure and give you a shout-out regardless if you want one or not, man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> means a lot to us it that you guys really are listening. Does. Okay, Russ, people are going to go... You know, say, hey, you know, the JU-87G1 isn't a tank. And that's true, but did it affect tanks? Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. In a big way. So we're going to talk about, you know, this flying vehicle and how it is still affecting tank development and aircraft today. So let me start with this. The effectiveness of anti-tank aircraft in World War II is taken for granted by most writers on the subject. That's going to make a lot of people unhappy, but it's just a fact. Offering an orthodox view that can be seamlessly woven together with accounts on later developments up to and including the Iraq Wars, or the Iraq Wars. Luftwaffe legend Hans Jurich Rudel claimed to have destroyed 519 Soviet tanks most of them while piloting a cannon-armed uh, Junkers U-87G1, or a Panzerknacker, what the German translation is tank buster. Tank buster. Russ, tell us a little bit about the G1. The Junkers Ju-87, or Stuka, which means dive bomber, was a German dive bomber and ground attack aircraft designed by Hermann Pullman. It first flew in 1935. The JU-87 made its combat debut in 1937 with the Luftwaffe Condor Legion during the Spanish Civil War and served the Axis forces in World War II. The aircraft is easily recognizable by its inverted gull wings and fixed spatted undercarriage. Upon the leading edges of its fared main gear legs were mounted the Jericho Trompeti or the Jericho Trumpet Wailing Sirens becoming the propaganda symbol of German air power and the so-called Blitzkrieg victories of 1939 to 1942. The Stuka's design included several innovations, including automatic pull-up dive brakes under both wings to ensure that the aircraft recovered from its attack dive, even if the pilot blacked out from the high G-forces. They would take these up in the air with a bomb, and then they would drive straight down at it and the this uh jericho's trumpet siren if you've never heard of it you can go to any world war ii movie or documentary where it has airplanes in it you're gonna hear that sure or or you can just hear the actual sounds on youtube it's worth listening to you're you're gonna go oh i know that sound i've heard it in tons of war movies even though the yunkers siren there's none in the air they're like the zeros, you know, the Japanese zeros attacking a midway and stuff like that. Sure. It uses that siren, uh, and it didn't even have it. Uh, you know, that whole dive bomb sure, thing. Yeah. But they would go straight down at these things and then hit the air brakes and go hanging basically in the air, drop the bomb straight down, and then fly off. Wow. So, Incredible. Yeah, that's yeah. some neat stuff. The Ju-87 operated with considerable success in close air support and anti-shipping at the outbreak of World War II. 
It led Erisoltz in the invasion of Poland in September 1939. Stukas were critical to the rapid conquest of Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France in 1940. Sturdy, accurate, and very effective against ground targets, the Stuka was, like many other dive bombers of the period, vulnerable to fighter aircraft. During the Battle of Britain, its lack of maneuverability, speed, and defensive armament meant that it required a heavy fighter escort to operate effectively. You know, it's kind of like, we're going to get into this later, it's like our Warthog. Our Warthog can fight against aircraft. Sure. It's not meant to, and it's not a real effective, yeah. but at least they can somewhat protect themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, they had, what, like two little machine guns on this thing, and then they had a rear gunner with a couple of machine guns. These Spitfires are yeah. flying with no air brakes. <laughs> Spitfire didn't have air brakes, I don't uh. think. And these Junkers, you know, were just flying through. Great for ground attacks, but these Spitfires would get behind and sure. flame these things yeah. up. After the Battle of Britain, the Stuka was used in the Balkans campaign, the African and Mediterranean theaters, and the early stages of the Eastern Front, where it was used for general ground support as an effective specialized anti-tank aircraft and in an anti-shipping role. Once the Luftwaffe lost air superiority, the Stuka became an easy target for enemy fighter aircraft. It was produced until 1944 for the lack of a better replacement. By 1945, ground attack versions of the Folk Wolf FW-190 had largely replaced the Ju-87, but it remained in service until the end of the war. That's because these things were amazing aircraft. Even though they wanted these all new, they were making even jet, the first jet fighters and yeah, stuff like that. Sure. They were still using these because they were super effective on advancing ground forces. The problem is... They didn't have any air support protecting their tails, and that's how they were losing these guys. An estimated 6,500 JU-87s of all versions were built between 1936 and August 1944. Okay, so this is a great tank buster aircraft, and but it's not a fighter like we were saying. This sounds like one of our favorite aircrafts uh, that are flying around. <coughs> Warthog. <laughs> you know, we both love the Warthog. Sure. Sounds a lot like, well, let's continue. Uh, go on, Russ. With the G variant, the aging airframe of the Ju-87 found new life as an anti-tank aircraft. This was the final operational version of the Stuka and was deployed on the Eastern Front. The reverse in German military fortunes after 1943 and the appearance of huge numbers of well-armored Soviet tanks caused Junkers to adapt the existing design to combat this new threat. The Soviets on the Eastern Front are, got their new T-34s, their IS-2s, their KVs, KV-1s and 2s. They had a ton of American tanks, Shermans with the 76, and they're all moving forward. Their tanks are, they're, they're, they're getting killed. Yeah. Let, let's be honest. You know, they're being outmanned and everything. So the Germans need an aircraft that'll kill these tanks. Well, they can't use a fast attack. They need something that can get low and shoot through the top of the turrets and stuff like that. Sounds like a vehicle or aircraft we know. Uh, exactly. 
The Henschel HS-129B had proved a potent ground attack weapon, but its large fuel tanks made it vulnerable to enemy fire, prompting the RLM to say that in the shortest possible time, a replacement of the HS-129 type must take place. With Soviet tanks, the priority targets the development of a further variant as a successor to the JU-87D began in November 1942. On November 3rd, Milch raised the question of replacing the JU-87 or redesigning it altogether. It was decided to keep the design as it was, but the power plant was upgraded to a Junkers Yumo 211J and two 30mm or 1.2 inch cannons were added. The variant was also designed to carry a 1,000 kilogram or 2,200 pound freefall bomb load. Wait a minute. It's got a 30 millimeter cannon. I know an American tank killer that <laughs> flies around with a 30 millimeter Gatling gun. <laughs> huh. Um, yeah. Huh. Maybe. Uh, well, we'll get into that, I guess. <laughs> but, but go on, Russ. Furthermore, the armor protection of the Ayushin 2 Sturmovic, a Feature pioneered by the 1916 to 1917 origin Junkers J, all metal sesquiplane of World War I Imperial Germany's Air Force, was copied to protect the crew from ground fire now that the Ju 87 would be required to conduct low level attack. Basically, when the uh, Junkers started out, they had like an armored bathtub. I see. To keep it from getting, yeah. you know, yeah. the pilots all shot up. Mm-hmm. Because even if a plane went down, there was a possibility that it could land on the friendly side and the pilot could go back and get another airplane. Sure. It's basically easier to build a plane than to build a pilot. Yeah, exactly. Especially a good one. Yeah. That gets one unlucky shot. So they built this like armored bathtub thing and the Russians started using it for their tank killer or Anushin. We're going to probably do an episode later down the line about that tank because we don't want to leave that out. It was a great tank killer too. When you think about it, what current airplane has an armored bathtub in it? Would it be the <coughs> Warthog? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that sounds I'd familiar. i say so. All right, Russell, go ahead. Hans Ulrich Rudel, a Stuka ace, had suggested using two 37mm Flak 18 guns, each one in a self-contained underwing gun pod, as the Bordkanon BK-37, after achieving success against Soviet tanks with the 20mm machine gun. These gun pods were fitted to a Ju-87 D-1. The first flight of the machine took place on January 31, 1943, piloted by Stepp, the continuing problems with about two dozen of the JU-88P1s and slow development of the Henschel HS-129B-3, each of them equipped with a large Pac-40 based auto-loading Bordkanone 7 cannon in a conformal gun pod beneath the fuselage, meant the JU-87G was put into production. Okay, so they've been kicking around putting machine guns and, and these cannons and everything. One of the pilots... One of the aces come up and says, hey, here's what you need to do. Just give me a couple of auto cannons underneath there and and I'll do the rest. Something simple that we can put on all these models and turn them in instead of just yunking them out or chunking them out. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll turn them into tank killers. 
In April 1943, the first production JU-87G1s were delivered to frontline units. The two 37mm cannons were mounted in underwing gun pods, each loaded with two six-round magazines of armor-piercing tungsten carbide cord ammunition. With these weapons, the Cannon Vogel, as it was nicknamed, proved very successful in the hands of Stuka aces such as Rudel. The G1 was converted from older D-series airframes, retaining the smaller wing but without the dive brakes. The G2 was similar to the G1 except for use of the extended wing of the D5. 208 G2s were built and at least a further 22 more were converted from D3 airframes. Only a handful of production Gs were committed in the Battle of Kursk. That's what I want to point out. They went to the master race. The engineers are being yelled at. They're like, you got to figure out how we can turn the planes that we've got into tank killers or we're going to be in a lot of trouble. When the SS guys are walking around, you probably don't want to disappoint too much. So they go out and they talk to the ace. They're like, what do you need? He's like, just give me two auto cannons underneath. Yeah. And it's what, two clips of uh, six rounds six each? Six rounds each, yeah. So, tw- well, no, 12 for each gun. So you're what, talking 24 rounds? Yeah. 24 shots? Okay, cool. He says, put those underneath. And all these old ones that keep getting shot down and everything, or these old ones that we're not using with air brakes, put these on there too. And then they start making big kills. So they grab these and head off to Kursk. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. On the opening day of the offensive, Hans Ulrich Rudell flew the only official JU-87G, although a significant number of the JU-787D variants were fitted with the 37mm cannon, and operated as unofficial JU-87Gs before the battle. Okay, so he had one that was off the production line and said, ooh, this is great, but they went out and added the other ones. Yeah. So he's flying with these guys. Uh, Okay, I understand now. Go ahead. The Stuka was heavily involved in Operation Citadel in the Kursk Offensive, uh, Rudell's cannon-equipped JU-87Gs had a devastating effect on Soviet armor at Orel and Belgorod. The JU-87s participated in a huge aerial counteroffensive lasting from July 16th to July 31st against the Soviet offensive at Kotonets and saved two German armies from encirclement, reducing the attacking Soviet 11th Guards Army to 33 tanks by July 20th. There's a good point. They The Germans are attacking, and they're pushing, and they're getting tore up. They're getting bogged down. The Soviets are using anti-tank guns, tanks, everything they can, and tons of landmine. So they're stuck out there. And then they send in the Soviet tanks, and they're like, holy smokes, you know, we're going to get overrun, we're going to get encircled, and we're going to be chopped to pieces. So Riddell... And the rest of these remodified uh, Junkers start just blasting away. And it is so effective that the Soviet 11th Guard is down to 33 tanks. And basically, that's base defense tanks. Man. So they lost tons of tanks. The Soviet offensive had been completely halted from the air, although losses were considerable. Flagger Corps 8 lost 8 Ju-87s on July 8th. 6th on July 9th, 
six on July 10th, and another eight on July 11th. The Stuka Arm also lost eight of their Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross holders, while the STG-2 lost another 30 aircraft in the same period. They're they're getting losses. Yeah, they are. You know, and they, they lose eight of their best pilots. These are pilots with Iron Cross, mm-hmm. but these guys are fighting to keep an entire army being encircled. And you're talking, you know, 30 planes here, you know, eight here and stuff like that. Considering the hundreds of tanks that they've killed, uh, this is sad, but mathematically, they're doing a yeah. really good job. Yeah. They've saved an entire army from being encircled, you know, and we never just say war's great or anything oh, like that. No, this is yeah. terrible. But mathematically, these airplanes were very effective against Soviet tanks. In September 1943, three of the Stuka units were re-equipped with the FW-190F and G, which was the ground attack version, and began to be renamed attack wings. In the face of overwhelming air opposition, the dive bomber required heavy protection from German fighters to counter Soviet fighters. Some units, like SG-2 Amelman, continued to operate with great success throughout 1943 to 1945, operating the JU-87G variants equipped with 37mm cannons, which became tank killers, although in increasingly small numbers. The Germans have these new FW-109s. F is for, like, the fighter, and G is for the ground attack versions. They bring these new things out, but they're still needing fighter support. But these Junkers, they still have, and... People like Rodell are, are flying them, and they're like, you know what? I'm getting kills with this thing. I'm not going to switch to this new plane. Uh, go ahead and give it to new guys. And they've already said that these new planes had huge fuel tanks, and we're getting, you know, a rifle shot sure. hitting, you know, that kind of fuel. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm with Rodell here. In the wake of the defeat at Kursk, JU-87s played a vital defensive role on the southern wing of the Eastern Front. To combat the Luftwaffe, the Soviets could deploy 3,000 fighter aircraft. As a result, the Stukas suffered heavily. Uh, Again, here's the Soviets kicking out 3,000 airplanes, and these Junkers, you know, have a couple of machine guns, but these things are flying circles around them, you know, and they got a machine gunner in the back, you know, shooting, but... You're talking about the Soviets are flying in fast, hard, and meant to do it when this thing's supposed to be nose down shooting tanks. And they don't have the fighter support that they did, and they started losing more and more and more. SG-77 lost 30 JU-87s in August 1943, as did SG-2 Amelman, which also reported the loss of 30 aircraft in combat operation. You got to keep these... You got to keep fighters off of them. I mean, otherwise they're just kind of like a sitting duck out there. And, and and I hate to say it, our modern warthog has the same problem. Exactly. You yes. know, it, it, it can shoot. Yeah. You know, and you know, and but it's somewhat of a slower. Yeah, it, slower it's not jet. meant to go up against yeah. these high-speed supersonic fighters. Yeah. The Battle of Kiev also included substantial use of the Ju-87 units. Although, again, unsuccessful in stemming the advances. Yeah, you can't, if you don't have fighter support, yeah. you're going to get knocked out. Sure. But they were used. Stuka units were, with the loss of air superiority, becoming vulnerable on the ground as well. Some Stuka aces were lost this way. In the aftermath of Kursk, Stuka 
strength fell to 184 aircraft in total. This was well below 50% of the required strength. So basically, when they're landing, getting fuel, or, or the pilots are getting something to eat, these Soviet fighters are racing through there and machine gunning them on the ground. So the Man. pilot comes back out and says, hey, where's my plane? And right over there in that ash pile. Uh, exactly. So that's done until you get another plane. It is. The way they were bombing everything, planes weren't coming. On October 18, 1943, the Stuka was renamed to reflect their ground attack role as these combat wings were now also using ground attack aircraft such as the FW-190F series aircraft. The Luftwaffe's dive bombers units had ceased to exist. So basically, all these units that the German Luftwaffe had with these Junkers, they they were starting to lose them and weren't going to replace them. They're like, no, that's an older aircraft. Yeah, we remodeled them, but now they're getting knocked out. A few JU-87s were also retained for anti-shipping operations in the Black Sea, a role it had proved successful in when operating in the Mediterranean. In October 1943, this became evident again when STG-3 carried out several attacks against the Soviet Black Sea fleet. On October 6, 1943, the most powerful flotilla in the fleet comprising the Leningrad-class destroyers... Now, there's three of them, weren't there? Yeah, there were three. And they were caught and sunk by dive bombing. After the disaster, Joseph Stalin decreed that no more ships were to pass within range of German aircraft without his personal permission. So Stalin's sitting there and he's like, oh, this is the most powerful flotilla we have. And then here comes these old Junkers and they sink (laughs) three of the destroyers to the bottom of the sea. Man. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, there was a lot of shipping stuff, even lend-lease vehicles that were sunk out there because mm. of Junkers and yeah. stuff like that. In fact, if you research that, uh, I think some of the Soviet uh, underwater dive teams and mm. stuff are starting to bring in, bring up oh, M4 Shermans man. and restore them. Ugh. They're like, hey, we bought them. Yeah. <laughs> we might as well restore them. Wow. And there's some amazing pictures uh that they're getting from these underwater dives. And it, it, it literally, in one of them, you can see a John Deere kind of tractor that was used to uh, pull aircraft around Man. and pull equipment around. Mm. It's still sitting, wheels yeah. down, yeah. and one wheel is still up. Nothing wow. runs like yeah. a deer. Oh, man. So if you are if you work for John Deere, tell them, <laughs> two tanks are a cat. We have proof. If you're not familiar with this, there's one of your vehicles at the bottom of the vehicle. To the sea out by uh, the former Soviet Union. Man. And it's probably worth for them yeah. to go down. Wouldn't that be great if John Deere actually sent people be, over there yeah. to got their yeah. got their tractor yeah. back and put it at their headquarters? That'd be pretty cool. If you know anybody at John Deere, tell them two tankers and a cat want them to... Uh, yeah. We, we want to yeah, lead an go. expedition to save this yeah. John Deere tractor. Yeah. So we would, we'll do podcasts from the ship. We're always trying to get a free oh, trip, aren't hey, we? Hey. <laughs> okay, Russ, I, I'm, I've got off again. Uh, give me my favorite part of the show, the stats. Yeah, the Junkers had two forward guns, uh, 7.92 millimeter MG-17s. It also had two 37 millimeter BK-37 guns under the wings. That's the auto cannon. Yeah, the auto yeah, cannon. Yeah, yeah. It also had a rear gunner, which had twin MG-81 
which were 7.92 millimeter machine guns. Can you imagine? You're not the pilot oh, or anything man. like that, and, and you're sitting back in a seat that looks back by the tail. Yeah. All you can do is feel it go, yeah. going straight uh, down, and you're looking up going, yeah. uh, he's not turning. He's- I wished I would have got to talk to my great uncle. He was a machine gunner or a uh, rear gunner in a B-17 bomber that was shot down in over Germany in World War II. Wow. So. Yeah. I just can't imagine the guy in the back here oh. and just, he's like, okay, I'm going to dive. You're not going to be able to see anything. You're just oh, going to hear the siren screaming. Man. And uh, if you see any aircraft get in oh. behind it, you machine gun it. Wow. And think about how vulnerable it would be to the belly of it as it was diving straight down. I mean, that's just. Well, that's why they went yeah. nose down. Yeah. You know. Man. Uh, scary stuff. It is. The Junkers actually played a role of as, as an anti-tank aircraft. It had a crew of two. The length of the aircraft was 11.1 meters. It had a wingspan of 13.8 meters. Earlier models of the aircraft did carry one 500 or one 1,000 kilogram bomb. Now, they went from 500 to 1,000, depending what their targets were. Ah, okay. If Makes they were sense. doing ground targets, it was 500. Man. But if they were going on after, like, aircrafts, like these destroyers and yeah. stuff that got sunk, they were using 1,000. Wow. The aircraft was able to climb 3,000 meters in 13.6 minutes. Not, not not real yeah. fast. Its dive speed was 600 kilometers per hour. It had a maximum speed of 354 kilometers per hour, and maximum power put out by the engine was about 1,400 horsepower. Now, how how high was this thing, or how high could it go? It could fly at a ceiling of about 9,430 meters. Huh. I know another ground attack Uh aircraft that uses that kind of, you know, ceiling. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. And it had a range of about 600 kilometers. Great aircraft. Oh, yeah. For what it was For meant. For what they were meant to do. Be. Yeah. 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 Okay. I know there was one that had a bomb loadout of like a four 50-kilogram bombs, but it wasn't really effective against tanks. You wouldn't use those against, yeah. you know, Navy ships and stuff like that. But they're like, oh, well, it, you know, they carried like up to four. Yeah. When we talk about the bombs, we're talking about the ones that were mostly effective. The four kilograms, I, I guess, yeah. would be okay for like emplacement areas yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But not real effective against tanks. So they stop with basically the bombs. Wow, Russ, good stuff. But that brings us to our second point. And I bet I know the answer. (laughs) How did the G1 influence the Warthog? Okay, there was a lot of similarities that we just pointed out. we did, yeah. Uh, Give us some similarities that the Junkers has with our Warthog. The G1 later influenced the design of the Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt II. Also known as the Warthog. Also known as the Warthog. With Hans Riddell's book, Stuka Pilot being required reading for all members of the AX project. Okay. Now, this is where I want to make this very, very clear. Hans Rudell, I think, got a leg blown off, and but he, he survived the war. And then he wrote a book on being a Stuka pilot. 
Have you read this book? I have not, but I, it's I, definitely going to be on I, my list. I have read reading. it a lot of the time. A lot of the points in the book, I was thinking, man, this guy is bragging, but he's not. He's just telling, uh, no, this is what I shot. You know, this is what I did, and this is how I did it, yeah. and this is the angles and stuff. So he put everything in the Stuka book. The designers and engineers, everybody with this Warthog or Thunderbolt A10 uh, project. They get handed the book and say, you need to read this before we start on this project. That's huge. Yeah, that is. That's huge. Yeah. If that don't show influence over the project, I don't know what else would. The World War II German airplane had begun its service in Spanish Civil War in 1937. And we didn't touch on that. Not much, but yeah, we talked um, about it a little bit. We're talking 1937. And... They said the early designs had the metal bathtub to keep yeah. from getting shot from rifle fire from the ground that was later adopted by the Soviets and their stuff. Like I said, it had begun service in the Spanish Civil War in 1937 as a German dive bomber, but soon earned a reputation as a relentless and tough ground attack aircraft that dispatched Soviet armor and artillery in close proximity to friendly troops while creating havoc in enemy assembly areas and along rail and road supply routes. Huh. What exactly our warthog does. Exactly. Our Mm -hmm. warthog gets right close to our guys that are being attacked and stuff and lays down some serious firepower. It does. And it's known as a big, tough, flying tank, basically. Yeah. In 1970, the threat posed by the Soviet Union's overwhelming number of tanks along the borders of Western Europe led the Air Force to request contractor proposals for an airframe specifically designed to conduct the CAS mission and destroy enemy armor. Okay. If you check your history books, they will all say they got the uh, idea for the Warthog following the steps of the legendary P-47 Thunderbolt. But if you dig like we have, you, you, you find, in fact... They really couldn't say we got the ideas from the Nazis. Exactly. So they put up a front and said, we want a new plane like uh, the P-47. And here's the book Stuka pilot. Uh, You need to read this. You know. Man. And again, what was this pilot known for killing? Yeah. 500 and some Soviet tanks. So they're sitting there. Somebody was sitting there, man, the Soviets have more tanks than we do. You know, all we've got is these M60s and some Pattons. I think we got a couple leftover Shermans. In fact, around that time, I think they were getting rid of the French Panthers. Yeah, you know? yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Somebody was reading the Stuka book and said, man, he killed 500 tanks with one airplane. Yeah. Using a 37 millimeter gun here, let's go ahead and build a new airplane. But here, read this. You know, (laughs) that that was all German and Nazis. We can't. No, no. uh, It's based on the P-47 Thunderbolt. Uh, And if anybody says anything, that's where we got the idea. Mm. I I don't know, people. I know. You you know, you can say what you want. What are you saying? Is this kind of a teaser for a future? Oh, yeah. Episode. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to do another I'll be looking forward to that because we do have a interesting fact. We do have a uh, Air Force base across the border over here in Missouri where, mm-hmm. they, where they do a lot of training on the A-10s. A-10 Thunderbolts. Yep. 
and uh we've actually been up to close to them yeah uh, oh yeah we've uh taken good pictures and everything of the cannons the gatling guns that yeah. they use in the nose and, of them and, and if you guys are not familiar with the warthog or the uh, a10 i, I suggest lots and lots of youtube videos out there that are sweet good lord <laughs> and, and makes me have another connection with the Junkers, is you know the Junkers had the siren, yeah, and when it was attacking, but when the A10, it has a very distinct it does. noise when it, it dies, yeah, and, and shoots its gun, yeah, it's a big brat, yeah, but yeah. but if you listen to it, you're gonna go, yeah. wow, that would scare people from miles away. Get their attention. And we'll talk about it. I yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I'm sorry, we're going a little long. We, we've got to kind of be careful. Oh, we'll we'll turn it into another two hour yeah. talking about airplanes. Yeah. But we are gonna you know talk about some more airplanes and stuff like that. Um, we got to give a Patreon shout outs before we, we close. Yeah, we want to thank our patrons. We've got Tyler Acklin. He's our newest patron. Good old Razbaz. Evan, he's still with us out there. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, Tyler's buddy. Antonio. Antonio Bernarda. Uh, yeah. Slam Jammington. Yeah. Still with us. Nice. Thank you, Slam. Alejandro Martinez. I can never say his hey. name. And he's been so cool uh, about it. We'll get you there eventually, It'll, Charlie. Yeah, so. we'll get there eventually. <laughs> uh, Bjorn Ben. ODS Thero. Still with us. And uh, when, I, when we're streaming... Rick Smith. Rick Smith. He's always there to laugh at me when I get killed by artillery. <laughs> he thinks that's the funniest thing. He's like, oh, ho, ho, ho. Yeah, Charlie's dead. Oh, well. We all laugh at Charlie every once in a while. So. Uh, make fun of, <laughs> everybody wants to make fun of the fat kid. Oh, shoot. But anyway, yeah, thanks to our patrons. If it wasn't for you guys, the show really wouldn't be possible. Okay, Russ. So we got the Patreons. Didn't we have a PayPal? Yeah, we did have a PayPal donation. Um, we want to send a huge shout out to Kim Shear out of Ontario, Canada. Now, I think the Fort Erie Museum, or Military Museum, yeah. is close to her. Close to her. I don't know if she's associated with that or just lives up there or, well, or what exactly. But but seriously, thank you for the donation. Yes, very yeah. cool of you. Very, very generous. Wow. I mean, once again, without... You guys' contributions, I mean... Uh, we'd be in a lot of we trouble. Would, we would. Kim, we get up there. Yeah. We, we want to go see yeah. that Fort Erie uh, Historical yeah. uh, Museum. Because there's a lot of history oh, there. Yeah, there is. Th- that whole Erie... Yeah. It's just something I want to see. Yeah, it is. Remember, if we are ever in your area... Yeah. Me and Russ owe you lunch. We do. <laughs> yep. Okay, well... That does it for this episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. This is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week. <laughs>